Columbia students are mourning restaurants that once brought them together. I'll tell you about what South Loop staples have closed. Coming up, associate professor in the English and Creative Writing Department, Patricia Ann McNair, asks the question, what happens when responsible adults are anything but responsible people? In her new book, Responsible Adults. Stay tuned for behind-the-scenes details on the new immersive Van Gogh exhibit that will make you say, let's go. This is Chronicle Headlines. I'm your host, Paige Barnes. Local restaurants are struggling to stay afloat during the pandemic, and with college campuses losing a majority of their customer base because of hybrid and remote courses, late-night bites are being cut off. Polly's Pizza is no exception. On a typical night, Columbia students can be seen picking up a warm slice of gooey pizza or a calzone for a quick meal before their next class. South Loop locals have also called the pizzeria home. Here to talk about the restaurant that took a piece of our heart when it closed is staff reporter Anna Busalaki. Polly's Pizza is located on 719 South State Street. So that's right in the middle of a lot of Columbia buildings. And it was a huge part of Columbia students' college experience. There would always be, when I would go in there, I would most likely see another Columbia student. Um, And it was just good prices, good food. They were open pretty late before the pandemic and then their hours changed a little bit, but they were very loved among the Columbia community. When did you learn that it had closed? I actually learned by the Columbia like meme account. They posted on Instagram like rip Polly's and I was like, no, like this isn't, this isn't real. And then um, I actually tried to go to Polly's. Their last day was Monday, February 15th. um, And that was the day of like the blizzard. So I actually walked there and I think they closed early because of the snow, which makes sense. But yeah, I I basically learned either the day before that day. Did you know or did your sources know that it was closing or did suddenly they show up and the, you know, windows were dark and lights were off. I think they all knew from the Instagram post as well. That's kind of how I reached out to a lot of sources because I saw there were like 50 plus comments from students on that post, like, no, Polly's was my favorite. And like, this is so sad. So I messaged people that showed interest and that I knew would want to talk about the restaurant. Do you know why Polly's closed? The students that I talked to suspect that It was due to COVID-19's impact on business, which I think is a valid um, prediction, but I was unable to reach out to the owners. They had an email and their social media was discontinued since like 2009. So it was kind of difficult to get in touch, but I wish I could have gotten to the bottom of that. The sources that you talked to, what did they say about Polly's closing? Did they share any stories about the times that they've been there? Yeah, they said that it was really a place that brought them together. And actually, one of the sources I talked to said that they've noticed a lot of business closures, but this was the first time that there was a closure that actually affected their week-to-week lives because they went to the restaurant every week. And so that was just kind of heartening to 
here that this restaurant was really a dear place to a lot of students. And what about yourself? Um, you had mentioned earlier that you had been there, but what did Polly's mean to you? I loved it. I I didn't go to any other pizza place. I think I went to Polly's in the beginning of freshman year and immediately I just was a loyal customer and only went there. Yeah, I loved the food. The service was always great. And it was just such a, a nice place to hang out and so close to campus. What would be your typical order there? I would normally get slice of cheese pizza. And when I say a slice, it's actually like two slices because they're so big. And then sometimes I would get the garlic knots. And I would occasionally get the veggie pizza too, which was really good. That is making me very hungry. I have not had lunch yet. Um, And to continue on, so in the grand scheme of things, how many restaurants have closed since the pandemic? I found Yelp's local economic impact report. uh, As of August 31st of 2020, uh, 163,000 businesses had closed nationwide since the pandemic began in March. Um, And I'm sure many more after that since... That was uh, as of August. Have there been any other restaurants within the South Loop area, like Columbia's campus, that have also closed? Yeah, the Panera that was connected to the University Center, uh, that was actually closed when I arrived um, to campus in August. So I'm assuming it closed uh, sometime in the summer. I know that was another place that a lot of students went to because it was connected to the dorm building. So as far as just businesses beyond restaurants, I know the artist and craftsman store also closed and that was another very popular spot for Columbia students. What is the city of Chicago doing to offer any assistance to restaurants? So they have the Chicago Hospitality Grant Program, which aims to relieve bars, restaurants, and performance venues financially. But of course, there's not in a perfect world, there would be enough money for everyone, but there isn't. That has been, I think, especially hard for a lot of establishments. And I guess the city is opening up as of January 31st uh, with restaurants operating at 40% capacity, which will hopefully bring in more business. But that's, that's kind of where the city is at with that. Thank you very much. You can read Anna's full article at columbiachronicle.com. Patricia Ann McNair's latest book, Responsible Adults, talks about adults that are far from responsible. The 18-story collection features stories about farms failing, families breaking apart, and when work is hard to come by. Many of the stories take place in a fictional Midwest town called New Hope, and in it, characters are fueled by grief and hope, loss and desire. A stepfather attacks a neighbor boy for exposing a shameful secret to a stepdaughter. A pregnant, undocumented young woman brings new life to a failing church. Managing editor Brooklyn Kioso talked with McNair one-on-one about what it means to embody the lovely ache of longing. Here's what McNair had to share. The very first story that was completed of these would have been regarding Alex, the 9-11 story. And um, I wrote that probably in um, 2002, maybe 2003. So it was, you know, it wasn't that long after September 11th. And then different ones came along at different times over those 18 years or whatever. Probably the bulk of them were like 2010 till now. I didn't really know 
but they were all going to be part of the same collection until 2019, maybe. Because I'm familiar with taking classes with you, of course, and you being very adamant about keeping a journal, I was wondering about how you wrote most of these stories, if most of them were written, like, in a notebook first, on a computer, when you were traveling? Most of them have at least some part that were written in a journal or a notebook. I don't know if there was really any that were written entirely on computer. I don't think any of them were. I think all of them were at least partly some. The shorter ones were almost entirely first conceived in the journal. The longer ones, I would kind of move back and forth between the journal to sort of break up the sense of um, stagnancy that I can get when I'm working on a computer sometime. I'd go back to the journal and kind of feel the story in my hands a little bit. Talking about the process of ordering these stories, because you did write them over such a long period of time, um, how you went about putting them in a certain order that made sense to you. Yeah, when I first started to put them together, it was a slightly different collection. Um, there was an, uh, at least one story that's not in there anymore, and a couple stories that I put in there later. Um, initially, I thought long, short, long, short, long, short, or short, long, short, long, and I thought that would just be the easiest way. And it didn't feel as though there was a, a natural arc to the book as a whole, you know? And I didn't necessarily think that there needed to be, but you know, ultimately it was like younger, younger people at the hands of irresponsible adults to older people who were either irresponsible adults or were responsible for the adults who were irresponsible to them. You know, so that seemed like a more natural trajectory for the story for me. And even though there's not a single real happy ending in there, there's there's one that's borderline happy ending. Um, I'm hopeful that that the characters are coming to some understanding in the work that I, you know, in the stories that I've built for them. That was managing editor Brooklyn Kioso talking to author and associate professor Patricia Ann McNair about her writing process and inspiration for responsible adults. For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. Vincent Van Gogh. Now, the works of the post-impressionist artist are being celebrated by projecting some of his most notable works on 35-foot-tall walls. The immersive Van Gogh Exhibit Chicago is a digital art installation that invites you to get up close and personal with every detail and brushstroke of Van Gogh's works. Here to talk about her experience visiting the installation and what you can expect when you go is photojournalist Kaylee Slack. When you walk inside the Immersive Van Gogh exhibit, um, first you're greeted with the lobby and people will greet you there. You go up the stairs, there's a gift shop to your right hand side and going up another set of staircases, you go um, behind these big white heavy curtains and you're in the room and it is just so beautiful. The show is playing. There's animations of Van Gogh's um, famous works. There's music playing. It's very dark and then it's very bright. So the projections fill the walls and the ceilings and they're constantly moving and shifting. You can see it from um, four different rooms. There's a very large room with 
triangular mirrors lining the center of it, a smaller room, and then two rooms that have low ceilings. You can also see the entire show from a balcony that is overhead. So there's many different angles and viewpoints that you can see the show, and depending on where you're standing, it looks completely different every time. What of Van Gogh's paintings can one see? There are so many different paintings that you can see. Um, some of his um, more on, uncommon works you can see, but then there's also his famous stuff like self-portrait with a felt hat, the bedroom in Arles, irises, and of course, Starry Night. You were talking about how it's three stories and it has balconies. Where is this exhibit? So the exhibit is in the historic Germania Club building, which is at... Uh, 108 West Germania Place. It has 15,000 square feet of exhibition space and it was chosen because it has three stories and its walls are 35 feet tall. It features classic Victorian architecture, which um, gives the space a new um, museum-like texture to show the projections. When did this open? The exhibit opened February 11th to the public. I know that there is a Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and there's the Atelier de Lumière in Paris. So my question is, how did this immersive experience make its way to Chicago? Maria Schlover, who is a co-producer of Chicago's Immersive Van Gogh exhibit, was traveling around Paris just for leisure with her family. And she went to the Van Gogh experience in Paris and thought it was just stunning and beautiful and wanted to bring something like that back home to the United States. So then she began inquiring about how to do it. Um, she learned that there was another Van Gogh experience in Toronto and she fell in love with the digital art genre and decided that Chicago would be the perfect city to launch this because people in Chicago are very friendly towards the arts. And she told me that Chicago was her number one choice to, um, to launch in the United States, which was very exciting. So then um, she brought the experience to the United States, found the Germania Club building, and the Chicago exhibit has the same um, music producers, the same music composers as the exhibit in um, Paris and in Toronto. How can people get tickets? So you can get tickets by going to their website, which is... Uh, VanGoChicago.com. Tickets are $39.99 for their non-peak seasons, and those are for adults. Imagining this, you know, touring it during the time of the pandemic, what COVID-19 safety protocol do they have in place there? Immediately when you get go in, there are temperature checks and there are hand sanitizing stations all around the exhibit. The one thing that I think is really cool is they have projected circles on the floors. Um, and first, when you look at the pictures, I thought they were just taped down, but it's actually projected on the floors as well. It's so cool. And those are just different um, stationary points that if you stop to um, admire the work, you can stand in those circles and maintain six feet apart from everyone else. So you can still walk around the exhibit, but if you stop for a moment, you should stop inside one of those circles and masks are also required. From the photos that you took, you were there during setup. Can you describe that to our listeners, what it looks like before all the music and the projections get turned on? It's completely different. It was just these giant rooms that have all been painted completely white. The windows have been um, replaced with wooden boards that are painted white. Everything is just, you're in a white room. Um, and they showed us the setup um, 
of them hanging the projectors. And it took um, a team of around 25 people um, working around the clock. And the preparation for the physical exhibit took around three months. And then the installment took 30 days and a team of about 25 people working around the clock to get the space ready for its premiere. That is amazing. How long will this exhibit run? The exhibit will run until Labor Day. So you can see it until September. Um, Maria did tell me that she has plans for other digital art experiences to exist in the space. So she's hoping it becomes a new um, cultural artistic center of Chicago. You just talked about the manpower that it took going into this. So can you tell me the figures or how big this exhibition is? Yeah, so there, like I said before, there's 15,000 square feet of exhibition space that needed to be filled. So that ended up being um, 14 miles of cable, over 70 projectors, and 500,000 cubic feet of projection, and 90 million pixels used in total to put the installation together. So they had 25 computers that were managing the projections, and then one big supercomputer managing all the other computers. I could only imagine their electricity bill. <laughs> right. This is a this is my curveball question for you. Do you know what would happen or what happens when one of the light bulbs goes out? Oh my god. I have no idea. <laughs> that would be just a guess. Um I think just one of the features of the project of the um animation would be gone, but because there are so many projectors, I think it would just cut out like a little square spot of it, you know, and the rest of the show would go on. And then everyone would freak out and be like, oh my God, a projector's down. Oh, one more thing. Did, when you were there, this is another side thing I'd add. Um, when you were there, did anyone do shadow puppets against the projectors? It would be very, very hard to do that. All the projectors are hung from the ceiling. And like I said, the, um, the walls are 35 feet tall. So you'd have to like be all the way up there to do it. Um, so no, not that I saw. Is there anything else that I should know about this exhibit? Just that I think it is so beautiful and absolutely worth, um, the money. People kept telling me before I, um, went there, like Maria and the other producers would tell me that, you know, it's a very emotional experience and it's enchanting and passionate and I'll admit, I was a little skeptical at first because I thought, you know, it's just projections on the walls. How can that be super emotional? But when I went and in between taking photos, I would just stand there and listen to the music and watch the projections. And it's truly like a 360 degree, all your senses are being stimulated experience. It is absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Kaylee, for your time. To read Kaylee's full article and see her photo gallery, you can go to ColumbiaChronicle.com. This episode of Chronicle Headlines is dedicated to acclaimed jazz musician, vocalist, and educator, Martez Rucker.
never ever stop if we drive instead of doing other things like our makeup while we turn the radio. Move along, ain't got time for you to finish all the text. Rucker, known for sporting a suit, tie, and hat everywhere he went, died peacefully on January 30th at age 37. He was a 2008 Columbia alum and later came back to the college, becoming a member of the music department's voice, piano, and jazz faculty. In his spare time, he directed the jazz pop choir, the a cappella ensemble Breakaway, and the award-winning vocal jazz ensemble Chicago Vox. You're listening to Close Your Eyes, performed by Chicago Vox and directed by Martez Rucker. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more at ColumbiaChronicle.com. For additional coverage, we're at CC Chronicle on Instagram and Twitter. Chronicle Headlines is made possible by a collaboration with the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM's Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of Suzanne McBride, Chair of the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago. Until next time, I'm your host, Paige Barnes. <laughs>